Welcome to the Padres Chair, a commentary on real-life issues that can take many of us to a breaking point. Presented by Dr. Tim Schroeder, the Padres Chair provides insight, hope, and encouragement from the perspective of time-proven truths found in the Bible. In this six-episode podcast series titled Insurmountable Odds, Tim addresses the unusual circumstances surrounding COVID-19, economic hardship, racial tension, injustice, and the honest challenge we all face of knowing how to live well and honorably in 2020. Here's Tim. I want to start by nudging your thinking toward the concept of myths. According to that great fountain of wisdom, Wikipedia, myths are part of the folklore genre and they play a key role in societal development. They get repeated, they get passed on from generation to generation. They're typically accepted as true, but what often gets forgotten in the transmission is that they are, in fact, myths. They may and often do contain important principles, but in and of themselves, they are not based on actual fact or truth. Now, one common myth I grew up with was stated this way. I think many of you will recognize it. It said, the grass is always greener, where? (laughs) On the other side of the fence. Those of you old enough to remember humorist Irma Bombeck, you know a different version of that. She said, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. But that's just Irma being Irma. Many of us were significantly marked by this myth. Actually coming to believe that the grass is typically greener somewhere else. That someone else's life, someone else's spouse, someone else's job, someone else's something is always just a bit better than our own. And instead of living grateful lives, we live envious lives of others. But their green grass is a myth. On those rare occasions where it might be true that someone else's grass is greener, we rarely stop to realize that it might be because they fertilize and water it more. Okay, all that was just to get you thinking about myths. Today we're going to debunk a different, deeply pervasive, and damaging myth. You've undoubtedly been exposed to it, and maybe you've even come to believe it's true. It comes in a variety of sizes, shapes, and colors, but its essence is always pretty much the same. And here it is. If you do the right thing, the right way, for the right reason, you'll be blessed with success. That's a great sounding principle, isn't it? It's the sort of thing parents would like to teach their children. But unfortunately, doing the right thing the right way, even for the right reason, does not always guarantee a positive outcome. Just read major segments of the Older Testament of the Bible and you'll discover that one of the most frequent bases for laments is that people are crying to God because evil people are flourishing while the righteous suffer. People doing the wrong things the wrong way for the wrong reason often seem to have it better than those who do things right. Or bypass the Older Testament of the Bible altogether and just read any current sports record book. 
And you'll discover people who train hard and play by the rules and and are, are gentlemen and women in their sport. They are oftentimes defeated by those later found to be cheating, using performance-enhancing drugs or other illegal tactics. And the inequity isn't even always corrected, even later when the truth gets discovered. The belief that doing the right thing the right way for the right reason guarantees a positive outcome is a myth that sounds like it should be true. It sounds like something we want to be true. Yet for all the good embedded in it, it is in fact a myth that doesn't hold up. So, if that's a myth, what's the truth? The truth is much closer to what we find in the next chapter of the story of Gideon. First, let me give a quick caveat. The caveat is that this one is not going to be the most fun podcast you've ever listened to. This one has a bit of a bite to it. But it may turn out to be one of the more helpful. Because it's based on the premise that knowing reality, knowing truth, knowing what to actually expect in life helps you prepare to face it better. And that your preparation can contribute to a much more positive outcome. You tracking with me? This is not fluffy, don't worry, be happy stuff. Rather, it's be prepared to work through challenging times stuff. Okay, here's the truth that corresponds to the myth, as best as I know it. Sometimes in our broken world, life is just hard. So be prepared and face it well. Sometimes, even if you do the right thing, the right way, for the right reason, you are going to face enormous obstacles. So anticipate them. Trust God to help you through them and devise a plan to overcome them. If Gideon's experience was even close to normal, and I happen to think it was, there are at least four obstacles you can pretty much count on having to overcome at several points in your life. So let's take a look. Number one, if you're going to attempt anything worthwhile, you will almost always be under resourced. You'll almost never have enough resources to face the challenge at hand. And if you get honest about that and deal with it creatively, that can turn into a tremendous advantage. Being under-resourced can can either be an excuse for not trying and giving up, or it can be the nudge that causes you to discover things and try things that no one else even thinks of. In the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 16, our friend Gideon is ready for the task. He's ready to attack Midian and all of their allies. But remember from last episode? Gideon had 300 soldiers. Midian had 135,000. And Midian had all kinds of fancy equipment. They even had a cavalry on camels. Huge resource difference. But notice Gideon's approach. Verse 16 says, Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. If you're reading this for the first time, you're bound to go, Gideon, like, are you nuts? 
It's like you're going to war, not to a concert. What are you doing with torches and trumpets and jars? Don't miss what's going on. There was no way Gideon could fight soldier against soldier. There was no way he could go head-to-head against Midian using conventional methods. He simply did not have anywhere near enough resources. So, with God's nudging, he got very creative instead. Sometimes an insurmountable obstacle is the best thing that can happen to you because it forces you to think differently about your situation. And instead of tackling it the same way everybody else tackles it, you figure out that if you use trumpets and jars with torches inside, the enemy is going to assume that every one of those trumpets and torches represents a whole company of soldiers, and they'll think they are outnumbered and flee, which is exactly what happened in our story. Now, I don't expect you to accept this or even believe it at first glance. But if you think it through deeply, I think you'll come to understand that a lack of resources can be one of the best advantages you will ever have. It'll make crystal clear what you shouldn't be doing. It'll make crystal clear what you can't do. And it'll force you to think instead of options that otherwise would never have entered your mind. Just yesterday, I had had coffee at one of the busiest little coffee shops in our city. A young couple had opened it up with limited resources. It's in a dumpy, unattractive building in a hard-to-find location. And then to make matters worse, once they got going, a, a large corporation that has nothing whatsoever to do with coffee sued them, claiming that their name was a trademark violation. Like, How does a young couple overcome those odds? Certainly not by out-muscling their opposition. What they do is they turn their opponent's strength and their opponent's resources to their advantage. They, they pull a Gideon. This little business had no advertising budget. Almost no one had ever even heard of them. But all of a sudden, the bullying of the large corporation was making headlines all over the place. Because they were large, they were well-known, they did have a big advertising budget. And overnight, this little unknown coffee shop was featured by every news outlet in town. Everyone heard about them. And once they reopened with a new name, everyone who likes cheering for the underdog was found standing in a long line just to buy their coffee. What they didn't have became their advantage. So, What does all this have to do with you? I think it's a major challenge to attitude. Many of us expend so much energy moping about what we don't have that we fail to get to the place Gideon was at, where those limitations forced him to both trust God more and to get very creative. So every time you think about giving up because of what you don't have, think about the edge your weakness might be giving you. All right, second obstacle that you will undoubtedly encounter in life. Someone's nose will almost always be out of joint. That's just true, isn't it? Like You can count on it, or as one of my old friends used to say, you can write that one in your book. No matter what you try to accomplish, someone will feel slighted. 
When the Midianites saw all those torches and they heard all the trumpets and the smashing of jars, they ran for their lives and the rout was on. And with Midian fleeing, Gideon sent word for all the rest of the Israelites to pursue them and and to continue the route. Then we come to chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went out to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. The tribe of Ephraim had missed out on the initial action, and they were now ticked off at just being asked to join in the cleanup. You might need a quick bit of history here. When when Gideon first called his army together back in chapter 6, Ephraim had not been invited. They were a bit further away for one thing, and for another they had a reputation of seeing themselves as being a little more prestigious than the others, and so they didn't get the invitation. But then, at the end of chapter 7, when Gideon's 300 men put Midian on the run and the pursuit was on to capture them, Gideon sent word to absolutely everyone, including Ephraim this time, to rally their troops, cut off the escape routes, and help finish the job. And they did. Ephraim responded positively. They helped. But their noses were out of joint. They felt slighted, and they made sure to let Gideon know. Let me cut right to the bottom line of this. You won't do much of anything in life without hurting the feelings of someone. And learning how to handle upset people is one of the most important skills you'll ever learn. That is reality. If you read chapter 8, you'll observe Gideon as the consummate diplomat. He downplays his own role in this, and he encourages them, and he thanks them for what they had done. And verse 3, last line, says, At this, their resentment against him subsided. Unfortunately, there are some people, including some religious leaders, who seem to think that being right gives them the right to trample on the feelings of others. You know what that is? That's just plain stupid. Good leaders and smart people everywhere know that they need to do whatever it takes to get everyone possible on the same page. The core skill embodied in this part of the story is learning to discern the difference between the real enemy and those from your own side who have somehow gotten hurt in the process. And it's always worth it to address and dress the hurt, rather than to pour salt in the wounds. There's a a pretty famous political leader these days of whom it is said, he'll never apologize for anything. And that may very well be a key part of his downfall. So here's an action step. Just ask yourself regularly the hard question. Who have I unnecessarily alienated And how am I going to address that hurt? Third, you need to know this. Even when you do the right thing, the right way, for the right reason, you will occasionally face some brutal opposition. Just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean everyone's going to cheer for you. It's imperative to learn to distinguish this group of people from those we just talked about. 
because the tactic required is very different. Well-meaning people who were somehow hurt in the process are very different from evil people who are bent on destruction. Your destruction. Let's rehearse the story. Gideon had creatively attacked Midian. He'd had huge success. He was obviously blessed by God. And Midian fled. So Gideon put out the word for help in completing the task, and, and pretty much everybody engaged. Ephraim engaged, even though they were upset, but they got involved. And Gideon had to solve that problem with Ephraim through diplomacy and apology. But Ephraim wasn't the only group Gideon had to deal with at this stage of the fight. Verse 4 and following tell us that Gideon and his 300 men were, were exhausted. They'd kept up the pursuit of the fleeing Midianites, but they were played out. They were hungry. So verse 5, he said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. You know, feed the troops. But the officials of Succoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Why should we help you, Gideon? You haven't accomplished anything yet. And they left him and his troops hungry and thirsty and tired and on their own. And this time, in the face of the abuse of his troops, this time Gideon wasn't so diplomatic. You should probably read this section of the story on your own. It, it's absolutely fascinating. But bottom line, essentially, Gideon said to them, if that's how you want to play this, all right, we'll play it that way. But when I come back, I promise you're going to regret it. He says, I'm going to tear down the tower in your city. And here's the, the part that's interesting. I'm going to beat you with desert thorns and cacti needles. And it's exactly what he does. The core insight in the story, one more time, is the need to discern when it's time to calmly and diplomatically soothe hurt feelings and when it's time to draw a hard line in the sand and say crossing this line means full-out battle. The wisdom to make that distinction and the courage to carry it out is, I think, one of life's biggest challenges. Now, some of you might not think this stuff is very spiritual. If that's the case, I just urge you to read the actions of Jesus. Time and time again, he treated people tenderly, calmly, and restoratively. Man, he did it with the ill. He did it with the sinners. He did it with the woman at the well and with the one caught in adultery. He was the picture of grace and diplomacy. And, on other occasions such as when the money lenders had taken over the temple and the only part of it where the marginalized were welcome to pray, Jesus booted over the tables and drove people and animals out, one gospel writer says, with a whip made with his own hands. Quite different approaches. And you need to know when each is appropriate. Parents, which battles with your teenager are worth fighting? And how vigorously? Employers, when do you coach and when do you fire? Spouses, when do you choose to graciously overlook flaws, knowing you have your own? And when and how do you confront? 
societally? When do we understand that we live in a pluralistic society and we cannot and should not attempt to force our Christian values on everyone? And when do lines of human decency get crossed which must be resisted at all costs? Learning to make these kinds of distinctions in the face of opposition is a high calling of maturity. And Gideon put on an absolute clinic. All right, one more truth that I find very helpful. It's never over till it's over. So make sure you finish the job. You know this to be true, so I could maybe just skip this, but it's in the story for a reason. When things are going well, don't assume that it's already over and just begin to coast. And when things aren't going well, don't assume it's over and give up, because the final chapter isn't written yet. I'm just going to summarize the next section. The, the two kings of Midian fled all the way to a town called Karkor. They'd already lost 120,000 soldiers. They, they had about 15,000 left. And the assumption was that the route had been so thorough and they had run so far that Gideon would never bother pursuing them any longer. But it wasn't over. And Gideon didn't quit until he had them in his grasp. And as it turned out, they were the ones responsible for most of the pain endured by Israel. Always, always resist the temptation to quit before it's over. We began this podcast by talking about the myth that if you do the right thing the right way for the right reason, you'll be blessed with a positive outcome. And how we wish that were true. But it's not how life is. And unfortunately, the deceitfulness of that myth has caused a lot of people to give up when they don't have enough resources or to fail to reach out to people who have been hurt in the journey, or fail to exercise the courage to oppose evil opposition, and sometimes to even saunter toward the finish line before completing the job. If, and this is a big if, if these thoughts have encouraged you to think differently, to persevere wisely, creatively, and courageously in the mission that you're on today, then the mission of this podcast is accomplished. And so I would just say, God bless you. Next episode, we're going to wrap up the story of Gideon. And unfortunately, I need to warn you, it doesn't have a happily ever after ending. Thank you for joining the Padres Chair. We hope that you walk away from this moment with lots to think about and some deeply ingrained hope. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode.